Charles Schwab over here. <laughs> hey, friends. You're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines the Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. I'm Vic Singh. And then there were three. Before we grab our Pada Bing glasses and jump into this powerful episode, a quick update. Thank you for indulging while I advertise to you. Not direct-to-consumer underwear, personal hygiene products, or mushroom-infused coffee. Just me. If you haven't already, please take a moment to sign up with your email at theregularness.com. I've heard from so many of you about what's next, where can you go to support, to listen, to continue the journey, and that's where. Theregularness.com Sign up for the free newsletter, follow The Regularness on Instagram and Twitter, and subscribe to the new podcasts wherever you're listening to this one right now. The journey Pada Bing started will continue there with more podcasts, more videos, more essays, more trivia, and other experiences over time. The first thing that's up is Shut the Door, Have a Listen, a Potabing-style Sopranos Mad Men Wire mashup. It's my effort to complete the pyramid we started here. The trailer's up now, and the first episodes will drop shortly after Potabing completes its trek up Mount Soprano where a boutonniere and an open counter at a diner await me. You're welcome to join. So that's my ad read. Was I under 30 seconds? Please continue the journey through the regularness with me. Don't stop. Theregularness.com Okay. The Second Coming. The title, of course, comes from a poem by Yeats of the same name. Interestingly, he wrote it during a pandemic, one that almost took his pregnant wife's life. And its use in popular culture goes well beyond The Sopranos. Joan Didion based her book of essays slouching towards Bethlehem on it. Joni Mitchell essentially covered it in the song slouching towards Bethlehem. It's referenced in a Stephen King novel. Even the Justice League movie has a junkie XL track on it called The Center Will Not Hold. More directly related to The Sopranos, this episode, of course, suggests a second coming of Tony Soprano in the form factor of AJ. The poem also mentions a rough beast. We can draw a logical line to Tony. And if we want to go full LeBron cross-court no-look pass mode, the pilot episode alludes to Tony as a beast through the use of the song at the end, The Beast in Me by Nick Lowe. And as the poem suggests the end times, to borrow from the show's parlance, so too does this episode remind us that with respect to The Sopranos as we know it, the end is near. We'll come back to the poem. Just wanted to do a little bit of establishing at the top. This episode was written by Terrence Winter, 
directed by Tim Van Patten, and originally aired on May 20th, 2007. HBO synopsis. Phil declines Tony's offer of compromise. AJ despairs of his future. Tony takes umbrage over an affront to Meadow. We open on more asbestos blowing all over the Meadowlands. Of all things, next to a sign asking people to pick up after their pets. Cancerous waste, though? Dump it, Will. Note the sound of wind. Turns out we're not the only thing it's carrying across the sky. Think the Ojibwe would have changed their verse had they not predated asbestos? We're in some random cul-de-sac in Kearney. Could be ours. The show is going to linger for years in neighborhoods across America and around the world. The camera pans up just enough to reveal the city in the background. The asbestos particles arriving at Phil's doorstep would be kind of poetic in an episode filled with canonic poetry. The asbestos certainly meaning something more layered than it first let on. No pun intended. More than just the multisanti residue. The Sopranos in its final lap is effectively taking a big shit, like T said to Melfi once, marking its territory, if you will, staking its claim. Cut to Tony asleep again, peaceful, birds in the distance, danger looming. This peace won't last long, can't last long. Then AJ asleep. Fathers and sons, 30 seconds in. Camera lingers on him, pans to the left, and his eyes open. First act of the day, cranking the radio, riding by Chamillionaire. Now an entrepreneur, an investor in Houston. Like, legit investor. Not someone who hung a shingle and printed business cards. Upfront ventures with Mark Suster. He was an early investor in Maker Studios. But who am I, Andrew Ross Sorkin now? Ryden won a Grammy and featured Crazy Bone from Bone Thugs and Harmony. Remember them? Busy Bone, Wish Bone, Lazy Bone, Flesh and Bone, and as mentioned, Crazy Bone. If T's crewmates were styled after bone thugs, what might that look like? Of course, right off the top, real easy. T-bone. Then maybe bing-bone for Silvio. Wing-bone for Polly. Finally, <laughs> junk-bone for Moltisanti. And since I'm on a roll, one more for good measure because he's near and dear to the heart. <laughs> Lion <laughs> Lionel Bone, of course, for Richie. Anyway, the Easy E tribute song, The Crossroads, Yatesian in its own right, and also something little Carmine references indirectly later with Tony. Propane Bone, before they try and go patch things up with Phil. AJ looks down and to the right 
said in my Kevin Costner and JFK voice, back and to the left, down and to the right. As if he were a figure in one of Caravaggio's paintings. The shadow and the light is cast perfectly here, just as in his recent therapy sessions. A tragic figure in imagery and dialogue alike. Incidentally, Alex Sakharov shot this episode. But you know it without even looking it up. Ultimately, he falls back onto his pillow. Not today, Cereal Pharrell. The music wakes T. He thinks about banging on the wall, but probably realizes what time it is, so doesn't. Note that Tony being startled to the point of waking up is a thematic visual that returns again and again until the end. They say you don't hear it when it happens. But do you dream it? Do you sense it? And does it have to be Chimillionaire? Downstairs, Carmela's unpacking a FedEx package. Cue my Tom Hanks castaway memories. T walks over, wonders what it is. Same way a judge does right before the jury reads their verdict. She says, a mysterious package, postmarked Las Vegas. Bomb and Mercier, part of the larger Richemont conglomerate. Luxury brand. Bomb and Mercier is not their most premium brand. That would be IWC, JLC, or even Panerai. But hey, maybe Carm's already got one or a couple three of those too. That or Baum and Mercier is what the truck that got boosted had inside it. It's an engraved watch. Reads, you are my life, love T. A neatly placed detail given that they later hurl this watch back and forth at each other. They couldn't fit Tony, he says. Carm, I believe that, patting his tummy. To which I thought, would have been no problem in current text grammar. Letter U, letter R, my life, heart emoji, Tony. You're left with room to spare. Like a Jokic half-court bounce pass. T says it's a sorry for having to leave so quickly for Vegas. Though, trips to Vegas are generally impulsive. She acknowledges that it was to settle Christopher's business interests. God knows Kelly will need the money. Can't help but wonder if part of that was Carmela fishing. Is T going to take care of her? Or is he going to treat her the same way he treated Angie Bonpensero? And hey, at least Angie kicked up. Put money on the street. Whatever. What's Jackie Kennedy going to do? Run a sunglass hut? Now, Chris had approximately zero business interests there, right? Don't get me wrong. He might be Fredo-esque, but he fell short of full Fredo-dumb. Unless he had a sportsbook outpost there from back around the Fortunate Sun era. Tony slurps his coffee. Carmela enjoys her watch. Oblivious, she's across the counter from a murderer. 
Or maybe she's not. Oblivious, that is. Especially given how she forces her invisible hand for T to take action against Coco later. Maybe women in this thing of ours are the only ones that keep any kind of omerta. To protect their husbands, but more so, their families. Next, we're on an old hospital. The relocation was shot on Roosevelt Island. We see the sign emergency. And it's quite literal here, actually. Asbestos is flying out of a window and into a dumpster. Bobby pulls up to check in on Stefano. Same guy T talked to on the phone in Vegas last episode. Their point man for the asbestos removal. No jacket today, though. Bobby wonders where he found these people to work with that asbestos shit. We learn they're Ecuadorians and Polacks. Immigrants. Doing shit other people think they're too good to do since time immemorial. I know. What's this, prime time with Chris Cuomo now? The guy Bobby's with, Tony Black, wonders why they're not wearing spacesuits. Apparently it's a union rule, Stefano says. Cuts in too much to the profits, so they skirted the unions. This as he forks over a fistful of cash. You don't got an envelope? Bobby, man. He was early on the pandemic. Quasimodo predicted all this. But back on the workplace safety thing for a second. Cutting out the union is one thing. But how'd they get around OSHA? The duty to inform workers about chemical hazards? The air sample test requirements? Personal protective equipment? Whether or not you have union workers. And most importantly, that even temp workers be treated like permanent ones. Perhaps the answer is as simple as they've all been made offers they can't refuse. Back on AJ and therapy, routine now, full circle, like father and son, the second coming of Anthony Soprano. I remember thinking the same thing the first time I started therapy about both my folks, both in therapy at one point, and now here I fucking am. Something about his therapist's office, though, compared to what we're used to on this show, it's more distracting than Melfi's. Close quarters, for one thing. Their feet are practically touching. Imagine what Polly would think of that. They're breaking down what happened with the Somali exchange student. It's been impossible to shake. But he did nothing to stop it. Because, as he explained, he's just one person. Commission by omission. He complains about Lexapro. A lot of complaining and blame game this episode. Went all the way back to second grade. Again, the parallel. Tony does a lot of complaining and assigning blame this episode too. Neither one is ever able to take responsibility for their own mistakes. Says he hears from others that Lexapro's working great for them but he still feels like shit. Wonder why Vogel hasn't broken into song about how it's no silver bullet. Speaking of breaking into song, AJ's one step away from recording his own Millie Vanilli album. How's that for a deep cut? Cue Blame It on the Rain. 
And quick thought exercise while we're at it. What are the first bands that come to mind when you think of Millie Vanilli? Go. I got UB40, Fine Young Cannibals, and Extreme. And like UB40, some red, red wine might do AJ some good. Like Fine Young Cannibals, Blanca drives him crazy. And like Extreme, his suicidal thoughts are more than words. Thank you. I perform in front of my bathroom mirror on alternate Thursdays at 9 p.m. DM me for tickets. Then he unwittingly quotes his dad. I mean, why can't I catch a fucking break? Recall we heard that at the beginning of season six in Members Only. The break Tony eventually got there came in the form of Ray fucking Curdo literally dropping dead. Now, the classes that just an episode ago were exciting and interesting are boring and depressing. Doc points out that he seems to be taking all of it, especially the finer nuances of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, personally. The timelessness of that line, unfortunately. The Doc going into action plan mode, lest this thing devolve into a code blue situation, recommends writing about his experience. About the Somali boy. A bit of Somali-American history I neglected last episode, but that I thought of here. The bulk of Somali immigrants came to America in the 90s after a civil war there. Still ongoing, by the way. And Minnesota is home to the largest concentration of Somali Americans. Also, of course, Murmur's locale of choice for a certain kind of witness protection. There's a point here. Stay with me. Anyway, Doc suggests a short story, perhaps. A.J. Hemingway over here. Seriously, though, he says it's because it might help clarify things. His feelings. I like the use of the word clarify here very much. That's why I said it the way that I did. AJ's all over the map. And one of the things writing does is get stuff out. Doing so puts our natural sorting sensibilities to work. We organically organize the confusion in our head. Even if just a little. Achieving clarity. Which got me wondering. Is that what this whole project has been? Subconsciously? A way to clarify my feelings? Like AJ this episode? I don't know anymore. But it turns out Doc was on to something. The American Psychological Association published a piece called Writing to Heal. It turns out it does clarify things. What's more, Expressive writing helps not only the mind, but also the body. It can even boost the immune system to fight off diseases. Then AJ workshops some writing topics. He compares and contrasts what he sees on CNN. Patients in Iraq, unable to get adequate care. 
against obese people in the heartland eating at food courts. Referencing, it's all connected, guys. That monstrosity of a mall in Minnesota. Obesity in America, interestingly, has trended smoothly upward ever since this episode aired. 30% of adults were obese in 2000. About 42% are considered obese today. This despite the mostly fresh and healthy offerings we're surrounded by and that are marketed to us. But what am I lobbying for sweet green before Congress now? Then the doc posits whether AJ's feelings about Blanca are related to the Somali boy. Mind you, this has all been a serious conversation to this point. Real Don Henley, heart of the matter type shit. When AJ answers literally, not seeing the nuance. Kind of just like his dad, actually. Despite its subtlety, to my mind, the closest to his dad we've ever seen. In speech and mannerism. Maybe part of that is the environment he's in. The same way most players on LeBron teams look great when he's on them. But once he's not, many of them are interchangeable with Ralphie. Nothing but net. She's not black. I mean, she's pretty tan. Love to linger there. How he kind of leaves that therapy room and goes right back to that construction site in his head. Cut to Sill reading, consumer reports, how to clean practically anything. From the publisher, a handy, up-to-date guide describing the most efficient and cost-effective ways to clean practically everything. With special sections on how to cope with daily cleaning regimens, eliminating germs, paint removal, oven cleaners, carpet and floor cleaning, and safe storage of cleaning supplies. His is the third edition. They've since done a fourth. Note, Paulie's right over his shoulder, almost like he's jonesing for a crack at it. Or, who knows, maybe it's his and he's letting Silvio borrow it. Note the broader social commentary at play. Guy's concerned about cleanliness of minutiae on a micro level but feeling no conflict about where and how their waste management business is handled on a macro level. I think Livia said it best. Out of sight, out of mind. Tony comes in. The guys jump up to greet him upon his return from Vegas. Contrast this with the way they receive him upon news of AJ later. Says he had a blast, but business shit too. You know, some guys out there owed Chris money. Yep, definitely not Fredo dumb. Tony fabricated it all. And not surprised. But like Denzel said in training day, you never know. He couldn't fully bullshit these guys about Moltisanti's interests the way he did Carmela, because you imagine they would know. Certainly more than her. He sees a new picture of Chris on the wall. The new guy, Walden, offers context. Little Carmine took it on the cleaver set and they decided to get it framed. Interesting, right? 
not two seconds after Chris is gone, there's a lookalike replacement. Super intentional. This thing of ours could give two fucks about who you are or what you've done in the past. It's 100% a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately business. And Chris, as we see here, is not an NFT. He's entirely fungible. T changes the subject the same way players who aren't on the running for MVP talk about how it doesn't matter and they don't care. The chip is what it's all about. Tells them about Sonia. His Larry O'Brien trophy, if you will. Just then, Bobby and his sidekick come in. Guys come a long way from being an assistant to essentially having one. But at this point, this close to the end, they're all just fucking guys. After a guy like Chris is gone, and you realize how immaterial he is in the aftermath, all these other guys are just bobbleheads in Tony's world. The atmosphere and energy convey that. It's not words or expressions so much as just tone and a certain hollowness. T mentions the peyote. Carlo makes a joke about Bobby doing mushrooms once, stuffed mushrooms, a whole platter. Cracks, cons, and crimes. This thing of ours. The music in the background is Please Mr. Postman by the Marvelettes, 1961. Speaking of the 60s, Tony talks about how nutty the experience was. Looks directly at Silvio, like he'd know. The desert, the light, Gus Gus Purple, Sasha versus the Light, track four, Paul Oakenfold's Transport album, If You Know, You Know. T makes a big deal about the sun. It came up. Sill. Oh, yeah? Like, is that all? What do you want me to do? Break into Van Morrison's song and it stoned me? The Chris lookalike says he did X once. You know, he was racking his brain, thinking of the perfect way and time to insert himself into the conversation, to continue the Van Morrison theme, step into the slipstream. While T relates to his new, young blood, Bobby's guy relates to T the only way you're supposed to. Hands him a stack of cash from the asbestos thing. Makes a point again to let him know Stefano didn't have an envelope. To which I thought, you couldn't have been like UPS and got one before handing stacks to the boss like that? Anyway, T gladly accepts and is appreciative. But certainly short of Charles Barkley outright thanking certain people for protecting his money in his Hall of Fame speech. Thank y'all for protecting my money. Uh, my first agent was a crook. Um, and I thank you guys for protecting my money. And, um... Then, Paulie chimes in on his drug exploits. Acid, 1968. Johnny Boy at the Copa. The Summer of Love. That was actually the summer of 1967, but 
Am I really going to get fucking cute now? Headquarters for it all was San Francisco's Hate Ashbury. Now, Paulie in Hate Ashbury is an SNL sketch, if not its very own, limited series. Guy walks into the Hate Ashbury, and by the time he's through with it, it's Hate Asbury. Says a BOAC stewardess put it in his drink. That's British Overseas Airways Corporation. And since we're talking about drugs, a precursor to British Airways. Paulie's remembrance of his legendary trip. Your Uncle June's got a laser beam shooting out his eyes. Cut to tea and calm hosting Kelly and the baby for dinner. She's talking about how she can barely live in that house now. First world problems. Carm switches to small talk, mentions Meadows' mystery date. At this point, the first time I saw it, I remember thinking it might be Walden. No idea why, but two thoughts diverged in a wood, and I ran with the one less traveled by. Speaking of poetry remixers, AJ comes down, but doesn't say anything. Still selecting what pitch he's going to throw tonight. T tells him to sit. Carm says she made his favorite steak pizzol. And you know Carm's version isn't going to have any of the cheap cuts of beef. So what gives? But AJ says they spray virus on beef rather than clean rat shit out of slaughterhouses. Corporate priorities are all screwed up. Tells him to read the paper. Not for nothing, but something the two of them do every day. Feels like the guy's one degree away from getting vegan tattooed on his neck, like Moby. The fucking god of the bottom line. I that's enough. Note while he's railing on the FDA and corporate interests, he's microwaving something instead of eating the hot, fresh food Carmela prepared. It's a drink, but still. The soapboxes we choose to get on and the latent hypocrisies we lay bare, depending on whatever platitude of the month we're on. They get into it like old times. A sign of life, which is a good thing. When communication shuts down, that's when you signal the red flag, at least in my experience. Bury your head in the sand. How about I bury yours in that fucking wall instead? Tony. 20 years, he won't crack a book. All of a sudden, he's the world's foremost authority. The baby cries out as he walks off. Moltisanti's baby. Maybe that was her version of Jesus. Is this fucking necessary? T's irritated, but Carm's glad he's reading. Can't be bad. The things we say that come back to bite us right in the ass. Cut to AJ back in class. That same instructor, Professor Klein, played by Lindsay Campbell, currently making waves at IMDb. On the chalkboard, W.B. Yeats, the second coming Celtic revival. A period of renewed interest in predominantly Irish culture during the 18 and 1900s. Got me wondering why Celtic was pronounced two ways. Boston Celtics, Celtic culture. 
Turns out, it's kind of a Phil Leotardo explaining how his name got changed from Leonardo to Leotardo kind of thing. Because they're stupid. That's why. Early pronunciations were with an S sound due to the word's French origin. But the modern standard is a hard C, like K, to give credence to the words Greek and Latin origins. The decision makers of this stuff were as confused as Moltisanti trying to find a song to play in his final moments. Now, the soft C pronunciation is pretty much used only for the Boston Celtics. Last thing on the board, Abbey Theatre. That's the National Theatre of Ireland, the epicenter of the Irish cultural brand. Unbeknownst to them, though, for most of us, the epicenter of the Irish cultural brand is any Irish pub around St. Patrick's Day. Or if you're me, the epicenter of all things Irish, Liam fucking Neeson. She's reading from The Second Coming. The ceremony of innocence is drowned. Note, of course, the choice to read the word drowned aloud. Might that have been a contributing factor for the method of choice for AJ's botched attempt? The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. AJ's taking it all in, but something in his eyes is off. Then later in bed, her reading turns to his from the Norton Anthology of Poetry, considered the canon of poetry. Even Bob Dylan's in there. We hear him reading in his head from the same poem. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. The word slouching is especially interesting. Poetic in the truest sense of the word, because our association with that word is lazy or unfit. But the subject in the poem that slouches is slow and methodical. Unassuming, but unwavering. Relentless in its patience and its pursuit. Like Javier Bardem in No Country for Old Men. Or the San Antonio Spurs every season Tim Duncan played. That thing, whatever that thing is that we think or believe or avoid, is coming. The center cannot hold. The next face we see, mind you, dead center, after that poem is read, is Tony's. A lion's body with a human head. A rough beast slouching toward the end of his journey. The expression, second coming, all the more eerie, given Gandolfini's death in 2013. Over at Satrial's, Tony comes over to talk to Harris and Goddard again. Harris is still wincing over his microbe from Pakistan. He's not exactly buying it. How long has it been? Since back in the season premiere, members only, right? We know that the long COVID is a thing. But long Pakistani microbes too? 
Goddard wants to show T some pictures. Not of Angelina Jolie, though. But it's interesting she was top of mind for Tony. Did you see a film with her in it? I did. That new one Taylor Sheridan wrote for Netflix. Or was it the subconscious, big eyes, dark hair look he always trends toward? They show him two pictures of suspects they're tracking. And T positively IDs them as Ahmed and Muhammad. Asks what's up. They close to something big? Goddard isn't sure. Financing, maybe. Then they leave abruptly. T tells him to bring party hats next time. Always with the jokey shit, as Pussy once said. Note the sound of bells as we cut to Phil. Sitting patiently, confidently, in his social club. T, Bobby, and Sil come over for a visit. Coco sitting in the shadows. Great touch there. But notice how he enters in one frame quite far away from his ultimate seat. But in the following frame, he's sitting down. Guy's got the transportive powers of one of Professor X's mutants. Phil mentions the flowers he sent over to Kelly. Again, relates to the grieving process, especially for people you're close to. Billy Leotardo, never far from top of mind with this guy. Just imagine if Phil knew that T killed his own nephew, too. Cousin and nephew, for that matter. When it comes down to it, if Phil were in the same predicaments, would he do the same? T isn't interested in flowers. Phil knows that. And that's the whole fucking point. But then, brass tacks. What brings you all the way out to the city? The condescension. As if they were Bedouin travelers, finally arriving in their caravan to peddle polished rocks from the desert in the big city. Tony starts with the good news. The condos at the Navy Yard, they're breaking ground. Translates to more no-show and no-work revenue. On the other thing, the asbestos, they're 10% apart. Phil says he wasn't making offers, but stating positions. What Albie would call gall. Again, we're talking about 10% here. D wonders what's going on, wonders what's changed. Asks to talk in private. Phil throws T's words back at him. For what? Tony acquiesces and says, fine. In front of everybody, then. Note how Butch perks up. Wants to be on the inside track of this. Remember in the hospital, our mutual understanding about life, the hand gestures to emphasize the point. This is business, Anthony. Yeah, I know. But I'm talking to you here on a human level. There's a limit, Phil. Come on. Feelings make things financially unfeasible. Charles Schwab over here. <laughs> so that's it. No leeway, no compromise, just stupid fucking jokes. Like that stupid fucking game? And also note, T says the same thing to Melfi a bit later. He can dish the jokes, but 
he can't always take them. Notice how Butch fades away into the darkness as Tony pleads with Phil, almost as if he photobombed the frame or something. Phil? You want compromise? How's this? 20 years in the can. I wanted Manicot. I compromised. I ate grilled cheese off the radiator instead. I wanted to fuck a woman, but I compromised. I jacked off in a tissue. You see where I'm going? Yeah. Love Tony's classic, yeah. Nobody says yeah better than Tony, period. Phil bites into his cigar, a homoerotic tell that advances the theory of his sexuality. T and company get up and leave. I mean, where do you even go after that? Cut to Butch and Coco doing a collection at a job site. Small problem, there aren't any checks for them to pocket. We learn that Silvio came by in the morning to pull the jobs. Butch shouts, motherfucker. Turns 20 years younger right there. Then the two of them beat the shit out of the messenger. Another guy tries to stop him, says it's not his fault. Butch isn't going to leave this place without somebody paying for it. Maybe it's your fault. The other guy runs off to call the police. I mean, the balls to even say that, let alone do it. In front of these guys? Like they're not going to remember? Like they're not going to find out where he lives? Where his kids go to school? And antagonize the shit out of him? Or worse? Coco takes the guy Edgar's wallet and says, Tony Soprano owes you $320. Civilian collateral damage. It's all in the game. Cut to AJ staring into the abyss of his laptop. The lots of screen time on AJ alarm officially goes off. Something's going to happen. Meadow comes over to say hi. Says she was just watching Borat. You can watch that thing 50 times, she says. And it's still hilarious. Still accurate. But AJ, it wasn't fair to the people involved. Of course, we notice the paradox of being sympathetic to characters in a film, but not an innocent Somali student who was outnumbered four to one. Like most teams trying to defend the Nets in transition right now. She says he loved it when it came out. What's changed? Unsure of his own emotions and where they're trending or slouching, he asks what she wants. She asks how his exam went. He says he didn't take it. Another tell for her. Then stops her when she tries to turn the music down. Something about turning music up when you're depressed. Drowning in it. Surrounding yourself in it. As a way to push through. Very relatable. Into the Ocean by Blue October is playing in the background. The song fittingly expresses suicidal tendencies. Specifically a story about a boy drowning. She asks why he didn't take the test, and he says he dropped out. Meadow asks if it's all about Blanca. And AJ, you know, I don't know anymore. A terrifyingly complex line. Don't let its unassuming simplicity throw you. Speaking only from experience. When thoughts betray you, 
like Vader said. It's all one big glob sometimes. You can't pinpoint what exactly it is that's got you in the place you're in. It's a combination of everything. She says she understands. She cried every day for a month when she and Finn split. She means well, but not quite on the same plane as AJ right now. He brings up bombing Iran, and she makes an accurate face for that non-sequitur, like we just made to her for hers. Two people caught up in their own shit. Disparate thoughts colliding. She says you need to learn to shut stuff out. Tunnel vision. Eye on the prize. Rocky four. If you see three of them out there, hit the one in the middle. He explains he's trying to be serious. The gravity of what they're talking about. But she says serious and surfing for porn don't compute. He shows her it's not porn. It's Al Jazeera. Can't help but contemplate that juxtaposition for a moment. But in a way, getting sucked into the cable news vortex is its own form of doomsday porn. But hey, we've all got our vortexes in that regard. Mine is cabin porn, especially ones in the mountains or by a lake. He asks, Don't you ever feel like there's no point to any of this? The ghost of Livia Soprano, confirmed later in Vogel's office. Now, one of the points, not to get preachy by any means, but rather merely to share a thought that's helped me. The point to any of this, or one of the points to any of this, is what you do with the hand you're dealt. What you do with what you have. It's the more interesting story. Individual responses to a set of unique circumstances. Do you seek shelter and refuge from the world around you? Or do you forge through and contribute a verse to the powerful play that predates us and will exist long after we're gone? To borrow a line from Dead Poets Society. What will your verse be? Her thought. Why don't you try setting goals for yourself? Maybe move out. To which I thought, especially after the past year, at home section of the New York Times over here. He says he's ill, can't go anywhere in his condition. Is on medication, perhaps recognizing few have it so good as he does. Constant comparisons to how rough Blanca and her son have it. Then Meadow pulls the Livia card. What makes you think you're so special? Millions of people take Lexapro. He reduces it down to needing mom's food, not having it could fuck up his blood chemistry. More from our newly minted, world's foremost authority. She asks if he told mom and dad, says it's not so bad to be upfront about it. She took time off and it turned out okay. But he's not interested in telling them, doesn't want her to either. Good on her for honoring the sanctity of confidentiality. 
but she's already gone to them once. Always wondered why she didn't go back a second time, especially after he just checked all the proverbial boxes. Before leaving, she reminds them they're Italian and he's their son. Maybe as a way to show how valued he is, despite whatever he may feel about himself in this moment. For emphasis, do you have any idea what that means? Long beat. You'll always be more important. Is this the longest the two of them have ever talked, by the way? I think it is. And like Pauly, I clocked it. Cut to Carm spreading cream cheese all over hot dogs, Lincoln logs, the expression on her face after what Meadow just said. She's like that mother in that Cagney movie Tony watched once just before she opened the door to her son's corpse. She presents them to AJ. Maybe later, he says, this just after saying he can't live without her food. She sets them down. Note that as she puts the raw materials away, there's a bowl of fruit with a lone orange on top. There's your symmetry, your ode to Don Corleone. She heads out, says she's meeting Gab for lunch, followed by a stop at Nordstrom's. How's Nordstrom doing these days? Just a quick look at their stock price shows that it's significantly lower than it was in 2007. I have an affinity for Nordstrom, and I might have even mentioned it in the past. I got my first summer job there in high school as a stock boy in women's shoes. Carm says, if you go out, make sure you set the alarm. Ominous choice of words. The regularness of life and the stuff you never expect that happens in between. She kisses him goodbye, not knowing that it might very well be for the last time. That's what hits different now, after all this time. Now that I've got a family and will inevitably go through some of the same kind of shit. Some shade of it, at least. I remember the day my mom tried to take her life when I was a senior in high school. She stayed home from work. And she never stayed home from work. But I remember her telling me she wanted to sleep. And when I got home from school, not to wake her. Again, like Denzel in Training Day. You never know. He looks out at the pool, which is covered to protect it from the winter elements, but sadly not from what he's intending to do. We hear ducks outside, signaling the breaking or dispersion of a family. Recall what Melfi got Tony to realize early on in their sessions together. He stares blankly at the diving board. The last time we saw that, Tony was cannonballing off it. Then we see the pool uncovered, partially uncovered. The water, AJ's shoes just at the surface of it, with rope tied around his calves. His legs are dangling off the diving board, and he's holding a plastic bag in his hand. Leaves are blowing, one final gust of wind, and then it just eerily stops, by the way. He's crying and looking down, but also determined. More so than you've really ever seen him. He puts the bag over his head, snug fit. He thought this through. 
just not all the permutations. He puts a rubber band around it to cinch it to his neck. He breathes a few times. We see the bag expand and contract. Then we see him clasp the cinder block in his lap. In its own way, to my eye, there is a religiosity to the imagery. His elbows jutting out to form a crucifix of sorts. The rope is almost a rosary. He throws it in and his body follows along with it. The shot of the yard with the bubbles coming up. Then, whether it was a change of heart, fear, not wanting to miss out on Carmela's food, or even what Melfi suggests, not a real attempt, but rather a cry for help. He changes his mind. Comes up. Takes the bag off his head, but can't get loosened from the brick. Same feeling a lot of us have with this show. He tries to grab the diving board, but is unable. In his struggle, like Ponte Corvo's, I honestly thought he was going to die here. Like I mentioned last time, something happens to one or both of T's kids. Just like in three. And that's his downfall. Either through rage or something self-inflicted. Just then, T pulls up. The fucking luck on this guy, right? Cool, calm, and content. Even after that thing with Phil. His ability to compartmentalize. Which I know we've digressed into at length already. Sees the Lincoln Log sandwiches on the counter and is thrilled. Again, more father and son contrast. Takes a bite. Then hears AJ outside, screaming for help. T sees him barely hanging onto the diving board and bolts outside. Doesn't let go of the sandwich, though. Not yet. Not until he realizes what's happened. Then, he runs faster than he did in Test Dream. Faster than Tony Parker chasing a loose ball. Helps him to the edge, pulls the cinder block up, snot flying everywhere, an unplanned but visceral element. Just such a powerful moment. Crying, shaking. What's wrong with you? Think about what you would say in that moment if you were in his shoes. The anger. Then, tenderness. All right. You all right? All right. Come on. And that's where the magic is. He puts his head in his lap, calls him baby, starts sobbing. Instantly. Just one word. Just one look. If that isn't command and control and earned equity from the audience, nothing is. You're all right. Padding and repeating, breaking down. I know I've said it an average of 1.6 times an episode across this entire project. It's not TV. It's not cinema. It's art. The way it elicits different emotions in the same frame. Next, we see T and Carm and Meadow and Vogel trailing behind AJ, who's being pushed in a wheelchair, about to get admitted, slouching toward recovery. They leave him with Vogel, who will get him settled and says they can come back tomorrow. He warns them that he's had a lot of Valium, 
That's why he looks the way he does, pale and distant. The electronic doors close behind as he's wheeled off. Meadow gets emotional watching her mom and dad say goodbye. Perfect expression, given, of course, what she just said to AJ about how important he is to them. They start to blame themselves or some version of that. Meadows says it's not their fault. Carm reminds her that she warned them. Edie Falco makes this whole moment, by the way. A family hug minus one. Then cut from one broken family to another. The guys. Playing pool. Tea comes in. Everybody knows. Wait, do they know? Would he talk about that? How would it leak? Would it make the papers? Polly asks if T's hungry. He can send a kid to buy ya fresh. <laughs> Comedy amidst the chaos. Unrelenting. But in defense of my longtime favorite, Chipotle, don't judge. Baja Fresh is the glorified crew of fast casual ethnic cuisine. T asks about Phil as he realizes they do know. Maybe Carm told Gabby? He can feel it. Let's dispense with the 500-pound elephant in the room. My kid tried to off himself. That, for the record, is a pretty lightweight elephant. 800-pound gorilla is one thing. But 500-pound elephant? Does that count as a malaprop given that he's about 10,000 pounds off? And I freely admit that the fact that my brain goes straight to Ginny's sack makes me a despicable person. Nobody says anything. Tony calls them out on it. Where did I lose this kid? Where did I go wrong? The closest he'll come, as we'll see, to blaming himself. Other guys offer up anecdotes about rough patches with their own kids, but they pale in comparison in terms of gravity, suggesting there's more blame to be cast than he's letting on. Well, fuck if they're going to be the ones to do it, especially publicly. Polly offers an anecdote about mercury in fishes. For that, he says it's a miracle more kids aren't jumping off bridges. Not surprisingly, that correlation never made it into the medical journals Melfi and Elliot have access to. Not exactly. Though in 2014, the American Journal of Psychiatry published a study about mercury poisoning and its effect on psychiatric illnesses. That for all intents and purposes, took several dozen pages to conclude that exposure to toxins any toxins, can have adverse effects on one's mental health. Needless to say, the doctors that produced these findings <laughs> graduated at the top of their fucking class. T ponders the permutations as we cut to Carm at home, emptying the dishwasher. We see the pool out the window, recovered. But she hasn't recovered. Neither has T. And that pool has taken on a different meaning now 
since we first saw it through the same window in the pilot. Will Tony, you wonder, be able to look at the pool the same way again? The site of one of his greatest joys and now greatest sorrows. Also, recall the anecdote about the kid drowning in a pool during the Soprano Home Movies lake trip. How Tony couldn't shake it then, as here. He's depressed. But she's kind of not interested. If he won't blame himself, she has no problem doing so. He gets defensive. It's an illness. It's fucking hereditary. At this point, she reminds him she knows it all too well. She's intimately acquainted with the soprano curse. His father, his uncle, his great-grandfather who drove a cart off a cliff. Oh, just when you thought you heard it all, right? Her point, the blame game. She says he didn't get it from my family. That's all I'm going to say. But T's not going to take the fall for this. As apparent and obvious as it is. He rips on Hugh, which is among his most offensive acts, in my mind. She wonders what happened, when it all went to shit. You were the comedian, the rapscallion in high school. She says it was all bullshit. Well, kinda, yeah. He even admitted as much in the pilot. He's the sad clown. Happy on the outside, but broken on the inside. Then he gears up for a third Whitecaps-worthy encounter. Everything in threes. And what better foundation to let it fly than when one of your kids is in the hospital after a suicide attempt? Oh, poor you, he says. He drops this Livia favorite all over the place this episode. She got married under false pretenses. Speaking to her in the third person, almost as if his mother were right there in the room with them. One rim shot after another. Where else but the kitchen, by the way? Headquarters for the best and worst of our lives since time immemorial. She throws her punch. You've been playing the depression card until it is worn to shreds. That hits different as I'm now closer to the halfway point of my life, actuarily speaking. Card, he says. Note the camera sway, like a referee in the ring between two boxers, trying to create space. It wears you down, Tony, that's all I'm saying. Do you have any idea what it's like to spend day after day with somebody who is constantly complaining? The word choice, constantly. I often find myself playing this line back in my head when I'm in need of a course correction with my wife. She turns around to walk away, unable to offer a coherent thought, but desperately in need of releasing something from a clogged valve, he says, fuck you. The timing and delivery of it combine forces to be a gut punch of removing your watch and throwing it at the person who said it proportion. 
you think he's going to chase after her like he did in Whitecap's light. But instead, he merely throws it back at her. A technical foul as opposed to a flagrant two. And with that, we're where else? Melfi's chair. Our soft landing for moments like these since the opening frame. She's over it at this point, though. And I believe we've alluded to that already. But it's all too apparent now. Taking the fees, no doubt. Taking the fees. But over it. Though we're still here. Hanging on every word. This is the place, after all, where something more important than who got whacked is going to be revealed. It's here, right? Where our feelings and emotions toward Tony will be validated, honored. She brings up the cry for help hypothesis, referring, of course, to the botched attempt as opposed to the literal cry for help says that AJ knew on some level that the rope was too long to keep him submerged. Tony agrees, but likens it to him being a fucking idiot, as opposed to thoughtful. Kind of actually blames AJ more than himself. Note, a book in the frame on Melfi's shelf next to T reads, Future Youth on the Spine. He says he and Carm were getting along so good, too. And now this. Kind of a low-key, low point for him here. My son fucked up the dynamic between me and my wife. As if to say, I was in the clear. Out of the doghouse. Free to do as I please without suspicion, attention, or rancor. And now this. He brings up his family tree. Reminds her of the hereditary lineage of mental health in his family, especially the men in his family. But saying nothing of his mother, whose mitochondria he has coursing through all his cells. The molecular level engines that drive, among other things, are moods and relative dispositions. Melfi communicates indirectly that T's lifestyle might have something to do with this. Again, just like she did in the pilot. But also coming to the defense of mothers. He says he knows, but he's not taken the rap. Not completely. Even in a safe place like this, with no judgment, not necessarily, he won't take the blame. Instead, another low point. He puts it all on Carmela. Every problem, She's right there to pick him up and wipe his tears on her apron strings. Note, really, truly something he wished his own mother would have done for him. Even just once. And recall, they've discussed this very thing before. Resenting Carmela for being the mother he never had. Svetlana said it succinctly and perhaps best. People are people. Are you ashamed of him? 
she asks. Long beat? Then, yeah, actually I am. The coward's way out. Isn't that what they call it? It is. No malaprop there. But Melfi says whoever said that didn't understand depression. But you do, don't you? Sees through him the same way Rachel Menken saw through Dawn in Mad Men. Sees through him the way Moltisanti did in front of the grill in his backyard. Understanding the human condition on account, he was a head case. I'm quoting the show on a subconscious level here without even realizing it. I hope you're getting at least some of it. He looks at her and his eyes well up. He doesn't say it, but you get the sense he's thought about the same thing AJ actually did. Just never acted on it. Not that we've seen, anyway. Wouldn't be surprised if some version of it appears in the prequel, though. Especially right around the time Tony B got pinched. Cut to Carm visiting AJ. Brings him a tea, which I thought was funny because the real tea couldn't come, we learn, because Meadow got rear-ended on Bloomfield Avenue. That makes me think back to 46 Long, when Livia dropped her friend off and then proceeded to rear-end and run her over. AJ asks if he's still mad. She says he was never mad. As pissed as she is with Tony, she defends him in front of her son. She's the nucleus of that family unit and always seems to grasp the importance of that. He asks how long he has to stay. Carm says Dr. Vogel says a timeout here is a good thing right now. Code for indefinitely. AJ, a timeout? What am I, in preschool now? Slightly modifying his comment for added emphasis. Carm notices a young girl pulling her hair out, like Caitlin, Meadows' freshman year roommate. Wonder if she's thinking the same thing. Maybe even feeling a little guilty for judging her, when now her own son is in a similar place. He says he can't taste the food there. The turkey's bland. Carm says she'll bring chicken parm tomorrow. (laughs) But he says that's not allowed on account of all the bulimic girls. The contrast of the misery and humor never ceases to amaze. Cut to Coco enjoying an aperitif with Albi, a signal, if anything, that he's a higher up, chilling with the equivalent of Silvio in public. Most importantly, perhaps, Phil's got his back for what's to come. He's looking on at Meadow, who's with her mystery date, who's finally revealed, but not officially. This is Patsy Parisi's older son, Patrick, who Patsy just said could be a moody fuck, by the way. No doubt skewing our first impression for our beloved Meadow. Just a little. Anyway, that's for another time. Here, Coco walks over to the table where Patrick's in the middle of telling her about tickets to a show, Front Row Mezzanine at Grey Gardens, a musical based on the 1975 Riches to Rags documentary about Jackie Kennedy's aunt and cousin living in a derelict mansion in the Hamptons. 
Small World, Junior's friend from House Arrest, won a Tony for her performance in it. Right then, Coco interrupts. Again, the transportive capabilities of this guy. Walking through portals like Steppenwolf. Says to Meadow, you're Tony Soprano's kid, right? She says, yeah. He leans in, crowds the table. Patrick leans back. Another knock, if you ask me. Small world running into you like this, huh? You know he was tracking her, though. Meadow asks if she knows the guy at which point he makes an off-color remark about cream on her face. Says he could make a contribution in that department if given the opportunity. She's taken aback. He tries to touch her. Actually, he does make contact with her face for a split second. Keeps going. Lucky guy, her dad. Then looks at Patrick. Must be fun tucking her in at night, huh? Patrick gets up, gets in his face. Too little, too late. Asks Coco, you have a problem? It's rhetorical. Obvious he does. Coco, tough. The opposite of slouching. Not yet. Would you like one? Acting like Stallone in Judge Dredd. Coming just a notch shy of saying, I am the law. To who, by the way, he probably doesn't know, is a lawyer. Then, Albie comes over to pull him out of there. As he leaves, he says, best to your dad. The way he laughs on exit. Could he not realize what was coming? Women and children are off limits. He not get that memo? We see they're at a place called Cafe Roma on the corner of Broome and Mulberry Streets. Coco stumbles out. Patrick is mystified. Cut to the Soprano home exterior. Does Meadow tell her dad right then and there? Not exactly. Not at first. We see she was midstream having a conversation with her mom about it, though. Tony comes down. Meadow doesn't want her to say anything. Tony notices the silence. You two talking about me again? Note he's wearing his Pyomai suit. He notices the awkward silence. Carm doesn't say anything, but gives a gesture and a look. Tony stands there just long enough for Meadow to buckle. She asks if he knows a guy named Coco. Then, Carmela finishes the thought. Knows what needs to be said to trigger something in Tony. She wants blood. Meadow says she could smell the Sambuca on his breath. In classic Tony fashion, he uses that line again in a few moments. He gets angry, but then quickly dials back. It's okay, he's an idiot, but he's harmless. He'll talk to somebody about it. Somebody. But like with the Bevilacqua brothers, yes, I know they're not brothers. He wants this one himself. Meadow reads the tea leaves, pun kind of intended as I hear myself saying it out loud, and senses something bigger's gonna happen. Tony was able to piece the rest together after she said whipped cream. Carmela totally knows. It's what she wants. 
another person fucking with her kid like that? That shit's primal. Whether you're in that thing of theirs or not. Most gangster move of all time? Carmela changes the subject while Tony breathes heavy. Her work is done. The wheels are in motion. She turns on a dime and asks about the boy. Knowing the other thing is sufficiently gnawing on Tony's mind. The mystery date. Meadow reveals that it's Patrick Parisi. They can't believe it, and that's exactly why she didn't want to tell them. T's look. This just after hearing from Patsy that he's a moody prick. Also, a big through line to the pilot, potentially. And something that clearly explains Meadow's apprehension about telling them. Meadow mentions the name Patrick then, too. Specifically, his swim meet. Then, she all but confirms this by saying, he's really changed. They have some history. T gets up and walks out. Meeting with Syl, he murmurs. And we're immediately thinking, Coco's dead. Then Patsy after him. At a minimum, that mofo's about to get taxed. But also perhaps some innate fatherly frustration that one of his ducklings is getting closer to flying away. Carm shouts out they have Vogel later. Don't forget. Again, Carm, you guys. She knows what she just set in motion. And she has the regularness of life poise to essentially say, kill Coco fast. Can't be late for group therapy with AJ. Then she continues with Meadow on the Patrick thing. Carm thought he was engaged. Meadow says he broke it off. Oh, another tell for us that he's all wrong for her. She says they hooked up at the Cleaver premiere. How's that for romantic? Started talking after that. Again, says he's changed a lot and really likes him. Carm asks about the mystery part of it all. Med says it's because she thought they didn't like him. Again, acknowledging their history. Carm begins to say it's not that. Gotta believe she's partially thinking, I want you out of this shit life that I'm stuck in. But then she dials it back. She's happy for Meadow because Meadow's happy. Much happier than she was, recall, when Meadow and Finn called her to tell her they were engaged. Okay, now that that's out of the way, there's something else. Meadow's order of operation here is schooled. She's got Carmela's head on a swivel at this point. She can't react or opine, just absorb and digest over time. Meadow's decided not to go to med school. She says it's too hard. Isn't anything that's worthwhile? Can I get an amen? She says she thinks it's law for her. The way Patrick talks about the justice system, it's really inspiring. First, Patrick is stealing their daughter. Now he's stealing their dream profession for her? 
Carm size. One curb stomp is enough for today. Cut to Melfi in the waiting room. Cute reversal. For Elliot, of course. One last tussle for old time's sake. But it's actually one of the most substantive sessions they've ever had. Even here, paintings with obfuscation hang on the walls, like the red barn. I knew all these paintings in all these fucking waiting rooms were fucking scams. Inside, Melfi's talking about her new lover and how his daughter, Sheila, resents it. Might be just me, but why does hearing about Melfi's love interests sting a little? She quotes Tony so Elliot can get a chuckle out of it. He grabs his water bottle for cover to feign ambivalence. Says he hasn't been in the news much lately. Elliot said his dad was a rabid Untouchables fan. Make of that what you will. Sips his canteen. He's referring to the TV series based on a book by Elliot Ness, the Prohibition-era agent famous for taking down Al Capone. Robert Stack was the star of that show. And though he acted in many projects across TV and film, most of us know him as the guy who voiced Unsolved Mysteries. Another Untouchables note, David Chase has said before that he too watched the series with his dad. Elliot's quiet. She senses something's coming. What? Elliot. He says he ran into a woman they both know, Nancy, who was working with sociopaths out on Rikers Island. He said she told him something interesting. A lot of studies about talk therapy as it relates to sociopaths and criminals. One of them is the criminal personality conducted by Yoshelson at St. Elizabeth's. In real life, by the way, this report is much older than Elliot lets on. It concludes that talk therapy is not only useless for sociopaths, but also serves to validate them. They sharpen their skills as con men on their therapists. Melfi's been a sort of whetstone for Tony all this time. Then he cites data. Reconviction rates were higher for offenders with therapy than without. He enjoys another sip from his bottle as Melfi digests, as we digest too. How something like this wasn't common knowledge in those circles. Whether or not Melfi is complicit in any of this, certainly not suggesting she's a made woman in her own right, just that so close to the end, we are confronted with the realization, thanks to Elliot, that everything is not what it seems. Even with respect to civilians. Cut to Tony storming into a place called John's on 12th Street and 2nd Avenue. Butch is seated alone, eating. All those cold, blank stares. Makes the guy hungry. Coco is standing, ordering his meal. When T comes up from behind, and cracks him with his pistol. And then again, Butch gets up, comes to his enforcer's defense. Even though his bark 
is much bigger than his bite. T sits him the fuck back down, and Butch climbs back into his little shell, like the hermit crab he is. T cracks Coco again, my fucking daughter, and then again, and again. References his Sambuca breath as he shoves the muzzle in his mouth. Just think about the pain of that alone, by the way. Note I mentioned his pie on my suit a moment ago. Now, he didn't beat Ralphie in that suit, but his rage is proportional. You can almost imagine him saying the same thing he said to Ralph. She's an innocent creature. What'd she ever do to you? Right here. The music is a jazz standard called Caravan, performed by the Brian Setzer Orchestra. If you love the film Whiplash as much as I did, you'll remember it immediately from there. Also, Brian Setzer, along with a series of Gap commercials, repopularized swing music in the late 90s, early aughts. Most people know him from his rendition of Jump, Jive, and Wail. But we're about to get to the most legendary curb stomp ever documented on film, and I'm sitting here talking about Gap commercials now? T turns him over, twists his arm, the scream, the placement of his jaw on the ledge. That fucking shot, man. The choice to show the placement crystallizes the whole moment, sears it on your brain forever. And then the curb stomp, so loud it makes your mouth bleed just thinking about it. I can taste the iron in my saliva right now. Butch looks away. Tony makes sure he doesn't want some. The crew in the back, ready a mop. <laughs> that, that detail is signature Sopranos. Larry, uh, we got another curb stomp next to table three. Grab a mop, will ya? Fucking perfection. T walks out. Takes the gun. But no cannolis. The crescendo of the music comes to an end as the door closes behind T. Art amidst the anarchy. There's no doubt that some of Tony's rage from other parts of his life was harnessed here and that Coco got the brunt of it all. But it's interesting that all it takes for things to go sideways is your kids getting thrust into the fray. Speaking of kids, over at therapy with AJ, Tony made it on time, AJ's all but reading the riot act to his parents. Tony with another, oh, poor you. Yes, there's a fifth person in this room, Livia. AJ's taking them to task as Vogel listens on. It's always easier when you have a referee. He references the way they've talked down to him over the years, called him names, his confirmation. She never thought to consider that maybe he was self-medicating. Just then, T notices one of Coco's teeth in the fold of his pant. Does his best to not draw attention to it. We've all been there, albeit few of us have had other people's teeth in our pleats. 
Note, we've seen teeth like this before, specifically in Tony's test dream. There, as here, there's an overwhelming takeaway, and it comes directly from Yeats's poem. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Dr. Vogel asks if AJ would like to tell them what his grandma once said. Livia, not Mary. AJ, without hesitation, that it's all a big nothing. In the end, your friends and family let you down and that you die in your own arms. Interestingly, Don Draper said as much at the beginning of his journey. He says she told him that when she was in the nursing home. We, of course, remember it, but Tony can only imagine. Also, as AJ says the words nursing home, no doubt T puts his hand over his face. You know he wants to say retirement community, but doesn't. Cut to a beautiful shot of Satrials from an alternate angle and offset at a distance. Just a stunning shot. Emotional. Inside, Patsy and Tony are celebrating their children's union. Sort of. Suspicious Minds by Elvis Presley's playing in the background. Tony, no doubt, a little suspicious about what this portends for Patsy going forward. Then Carmine comes over to talk. Uh-oh. The commiserate middleman returns. That's me malapropping consummate in honor of little Carmine. The song continues. Tony's caught in a trap, and he can't walk out. Note the deer bust looking down over them, appearing every time something consequential is going on back there. Carmine brings up AJ, expresses sympathies, then analogizes it to something that happened with his daughter, but much less serious, or even similar, for that matter, putting Tony even less at ease that he can't find one point of similarity on this front with any of these guys. Subordinate guys. But brass tacks, right? Like Phil said earlier, this alteration with Coco at his restaurant, it didn't take long, did it? Altercation. Also, his restaurant? Why do you have to place an order then? They should know what he wants, right? The Coco special? Funny how that takes a whole new meaning now. And I'd imagine that some deli somewhere on this planet has to have a sandwich called the curb stomp in honor of the guy. Off menu, at least. Carmine continues, You're at the precipice, Tony, of an enormous crossroad. Note, of course, that a crossroad can't be at the precipice, but a chasm can. Carmine's spoken word, once again, as confusing and profound as a drunk Yoda's. For starters, Phil's considering shutting down the Hackensack Mall project through a plumbing strike. T says, fuck it, let him. 
Carmine says that's easy for you, but I have the scaffolding contract. An indicator that he's out, but not really out. Whatever happened to him stripping down, jumping in the pool, and enjoying a nightcap with his wife every night? T gets angry. Is that what this is all about? Isn't it always the motherfucking cocksucking money? Over my daughter's honor? Remember, though, that the same honor was more or less encroached upon with the joke about Ginny. And in that instance, Johnny Sack was told to name a price or shut the fuck up about it. This thing either has meaning or no meaning, remember? Carmine says you almost killed him. By the way, how that didn't kill him is beyond me. I mean, you gotta wonder. Between the curb stomp and the numerous blows to the head with the base of his gun, what's gonna be left of the guy once all the bandages are removed? Carmine says we gotta go to Phil. Hats in hand, bended knees, boys to men style, all that shit. To which T smacks over a container of breadsticks. Knows Carmine's right, but God doesn't want to fucking give another inch to Phil, Mr. No Leeway. Mr. You want compromise? Then T, back in therapy, head down. Why me, huh? Note, Melfi's fresh off this revelation that therapy is sharpening Tony, not healing him. Doesn't every parent make mistakes? Melfi with a solid gold answer. Truth. She goes Russell Westbrook on him. Why not you? Her very own version of What makes you think you're so special? Tony, because I'm a good guy. Basically. The space between guy and basically. The basically part is what sells it. And like sheep, we forgive him for all his shit, all his transgressions, all his horrible acts because he admits in his own way that he's not perfect. Who among us is? But that he's basically a good guy. Given the circumstances of what life threw at him, he's forging ahead, not retreating into a corner. Also, I feel like we've heard the good guy basically in some form before. Maybe Carmela said it to Crack hour? But as I stand here finding myself at the end of this journey, everything is everything. Her eyes widen, Elliot's words swirling all around her and inside her. Tony's rationale is that he loves his family. Well, at least his kids, and to a degree, his wife. Talks about balance. Ying and Yang. What about the yin? (laughs) She knows better than to correct them. But he's referring to the ancient Chinese philosophy of duality, which, recall, 
bucks the conventional wisdom of John Schwinn's Everything is Everything. I identified with autopsy's homing in of the word vehicle here to get us across a sea of suffering. We've seen Tony in a car a lot. Tony's always either driving or being driven somewhere. But most times, conventional vehicles have taken him nowhere. For once, he tried to mix it up. He tells her about the peyote. Melfi says, you were searching for something. Her notion validating this seeking via traveling in vehicles idea. T says he saw things. Roger Corman shit. That's the filmmaker behind the psychedelic in film moment in the 60s. And also a guy who either mentored or launched the careers of many greats we know today including Coppola, Scorsese, and Sylvester Stallone. Did I just put Sly in the same sentence as those two? Of course I did. But T continues that it was kind of disappointing. There wasn't any of what he expected. This, I think, speaks to what Chase has once referred to as fourth-rate. Namely, a psychedelic experience that isn't intentional, measured, and part of a broader scheme is just some fourth-rate junkie shit. Multisanti shit. T can't describe it, but assumes she knows. She's had to have done acid before or something, right? She politely says no. You believe her? He doesn't, but lets it pass. This is, after all, more about him than her. He says that he walked away from that experience believing that this, everything here all around us, isn't all there is. Him saying this, recall, in the same room where he asked her, is this all there is? Just a few episodes ago. She asks, what else is there? T, the camera angle showing the darkness and the light in his face, the two Tonys, says something else. Alternate universes? Are you going to be a fucking comedian now? I'm not. Then, he continues in a way worthy of little Carmine. But Dr. Melfi is seemingly on the same wavelength the whole way through. Our mothers are bus drivers. Lots of silence. They are the bus. They drop us off and go on their way. They continue on their journey. And the problem is, we keep trying to get back on the bus. Whether it's trying to please them, whether it's trying to get them to notice, whether it's for safety and security, whether it's because we don't want change. All instead of just letting it go. She's taken aback. That's very insightful. The choice of that word. Long beats. We're spending time with him. More time. More moments. This is it. 
How many more of these are we going to get? T, as he looks out the window, you have these thoughts and you almost grab it. And then, the chin swipe. So true. Written by a writer, too, no doubt. They come at you fast, ideas. And if you don't lock it up and reduce it to paper, it's gone. And every subsequent version is subpar. And I think that was the whole point of the bus analogy. It started strong, but didn't really hold or lead to anything significant. And I think Winter was showing how otherwise profound ideas unravel right in front of us if we don't capture them in a timely fashion. T and Carmine go to see Phil at his compound. Butch answers. Tells him Phil isn't accepting visitors right now. Carmine says he brokered this thing, just spoke to Phil. T came to make a peace offering, a semi-trailer full of Makita drills. Butch says, we don't want your fucking drills. The same way Allen Iverson might reply back to coaches who urged him to practice before games. Carmine stands in front of the door for a beat, thinking about his scaffolding contract, at least in part. A wide shot of the place reveals we're on the corner of Marlboro and Dorchester and Brooklyn. The real location, however, is Newark, the corner of Grafton and DeGraw Avenues. Phil yells from an upstairs window. That's right, cocksucker. Go back to Jersey. Take that piece of shit and get off my stoop. Carmine tries to plead, but there's nothing to discuss. Even calls him Uncle Phil in a my father was your boss once kind of way. He can't understand. Why is he like this? Well, for starters, he was looking for a reason to be an outright prick. And curb stomping a key guy is as good a reason as any. T says nothing, just a long look, and walks away. Like Maximus and Gladiator when he finally confronts Commodus. Cut to AJ's rehab facility, sitting on a couch watching TV, watching a commercial with President Lincoln about insomnia. Nice overt symmetry with the Lincoln log sandwiches earlier. But also, Lincoln suffered from severe depression and too was put on suicide watch. I believe more than once, he spoke of it openly and even took walks outside with his gun. Recall that Lincoln is referenced in Kaisha too, when Tony was watching a documentary on forced introversion. We went into it in great detail. Coincidentally, or perhaps not, Kaisha is the first episode Blanca came into the fold for AJ. Just then, Tony comes up in an elevator with a pizza. He wanders down the hallway toward AJ, sorry, slouches toward AJ, but is stopped prematurely. No food in the unit. He leaves the pizza on the counter as he signs in. 
Very important question. Who gets that pizza? He leave it for the nursing staff? Or did he take that shit back home with? He's escorted back. The music fades in as the nurse punches the security keypad. The stripped-down vocals and guitar. You don't quite know what's said, but you know it's a parent's lament. And, quite frankly, that's all you need to know. The ending is a Western. The logline writes itself. A rancher recovers his wayward son from the clutches of a maelstrom that threatened their family and way of life. The doors open like a saloon in Dodge City after the Civil War. Father walks through. An invisible crowd parts like the Red Sea. He reaches his Mount Sinai, where AJ awaits. They look at each other for a beat and then walk off. Two manifestations of beasts slouching towards Bethlehem. Slouching towards something. Slouching away from us. That's all I got. Thanks for listening. Please, please visit theregularness.com. Sign up. Subscribe. All the things. See you next time.